Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, former Vice President Mike Pence recently said with a straight face that Randy Weingarten, president of the American Federation of Teachers, was the most dangerous person in the world. It's not a close call, he said. If you ask who's the most likely to take this republic down, it would be the teachers' unions and the filth that they're teaching our kids. So that's more evidence where it needed that the current struggle for pay and dignity by teaching assistants and adjuncts and researchers at the University of California is really part of a bigger fight about whether educators at whatever level are actual workers and who is looking out for their rights. We'll hear from labor historian and UC Santa Barbara professor Nelson Lichtenstein about what's happening at the University of California. Also on the show, some elite media are expressing concern that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito may have leaked the court's Hobby Lobby ruling ahead of time to evangelicals looking to make hay from it. But as Sarah Posner put it in MSNBC.com, while figuring that out matters, it doesn't necessarily address the deeper problem that the court's conservative majority itself, quote, was deliberately cultivated to expand religious freedom for conservative Christians at the expense of the rights of those deemed less worthy of protection, close quote. We'll talk about that with legal expert and author Marjorie Cohn. That's coming up this week on Counterspin. When it comes to corporate news media coverage of labor actions, there are, unfortunately, a few tropes to look out for, even in 2022. First, while strikes in other countries may be presented as signs of freedom, in the U.S., they will often be presented in terms of the disruption they cause. The New York Times' November 14th report on the strike by some 48,000 University of California teaching assistants, researchers, and others gave skimming readers the shorthand highlight that these people walked off the job Monday, forcing some classes to be canceled. Classes were disrupted, research slowed, and office hours were canceled, the paper noted, only a few weeks away from final examinations. Whatever an article goes on to say, the harmful disruption presentation encourages readers to understand that the status quo before the action was not harmful and did not disrupt and that worker actions are therefore willful, selfish, and possibly malignant. Elite Media's other big idea in these circumstances is to present the idea that, as CNN had it in their very brief mention, UC workers are demanding higher pay. Workers demand, owners offer, being among the hardiest perennial elite media narrative frames. It implies a context of scarcity, in which we are to imagine that the money needed to allow academic employees to make their rent would have to be swiped from the pockets of small children or something. Of course, the major weapon big media have is the spotlight. 
which they can shine or shutter as they choose. So here to help us see what's happening and what's at stake in the largest strike in the history of American higher education is Nelson Lichtenstein. He's professor of history at the University of California, Santa Barbara, where he directs the Center for the Study of Work, Labor, and Democracy. He's also author or editor of a number of books, including Beyond the New Deal Order, U.S. Politics from the Great Depression to the Great Recession, and A Fabulous Failure, The Clinton Presidency and the Transformation of American Capitalism, which is forthcoming in 2023. He joins us now by phone from Santa Barbara. Welcome to Counterspin, Nelson Lichtenstein. Glad to be here. Glad to be here. Well, pay is absolutely a key part of this labor action at the University of California, but it's not as though these are people who are really well off and looking for still more. The folks teaching at these elite institutions, some of them are living in their cars, you know, but many of them, enough of them, are seriously struggling, as I understand it, to keep a roof over their heads. So when we say it's about money, it's it's about the money it takes to live a life, right? Right. I mean, this strike has been developing for, for several years, and the one spur to it has been the enormous increase in um, housing costs and rents. And that that's partly, you know, pandemic-induced. That is, lots of people who, uh, you know, used to work in um, downtown L.A. or New York, you know, they want to, you know, let's, let's get a house on the California coast or something and zoom in to work. Well, that's jacked up generally housing costs in California. And so that's one kind of spur to it. I think everyone in California, I mean, from the left to the right or the governor on down knows that housing is just an enormous crisis. And here, of course, teaching assistants and other graduate students, they, they've seen their rents go way, way up. And there's been an erosion in their pay, small as it was, over the last decade or so. And in the last two years, the inflationary spike has done that. Now, it used to be that there was sort of a, a kind of implicit sort of ivy power bargain, you know, okay, you go to the university, you work for five or six years at low pay as a kind of apprentice, and then you end up with a good job, you know, a high prestige job, a tenure job, etc. Well, that bargain has been broken for a decade. And the UC's, I think, admirable recruitment of working class people and working class people of color into the University has exacerbated that because they aren't Ivory Tower types. They aren't Ivy League types. They're working Americans. And so this pressure for a, for a recalibration of the, the kind of the wages and working conditions of thousands and thousands of, of the people who really stand at the heart of the university, the tenure track professors, I mean, they just become a minority, a small minority. And it takes these academic researchers, postdocs, mainly in the sciences, but and then, of course, the teaching assistants to really make the university go. And we can no longer have a model, sort of a contingent labor model, that people accept that because there's some reward at the other end. That's not the case. This is their life. And if you're in your 20s, you have the right to get married, to have kids if you want to. We don't live in a, in a kind of Victorian era anymore. So this strike is, is quite large. It has support. Your introductory comments were on target. But this strike actually has support from enormous range of people. The Los Angeles Times endorsed the uh, aim for the strike. And uh, I think it's, it's, it has the potential to really transform not just higher education, but really well beyond that. 
Well, and the strike does have support, which I think is so key, in part because that support is kind of in the face of, if we just talk about big media, a kind of, oh, this doesn't work, this is a problem. In a way, the wave of labor actions that we've seen in the last couple of years have been such a heartening sign of people not just standing up for their rights, but also kind of, you know, talking back in the face of a narrative that's been pushed on us for a long time. And and, and part of that has been, as with Uber drivers and others, and certainly with journalists, we've seen a lot of, you know, they aren't even workers. And the workers themselves yeah. saying, well, we're not workers. You know, we're individuals. It's not like we're building cars, you know, and there's kind of a push against organizing among so-called culture workers or intellectual workers. Right. Glad you brought that up because I think one of the many sins of former President Trump was to recreate an imagery of what a worker was, a very retrograde image that is, you know, a white male coal miner or steel worker or something like that. Those are the only people who are really workers. And of course, that's so antiquated and out of date. American culture and political culture has to come to terms with the fact that today the heart of the working class in the United States are people who are in the service sector, everything from, from retail work, but also to hospitals, to the media, to universities, uh, etc. I mean, the, the biggest unions in the country today are the teacher unions, mainly secondary, but also higher education. So, yes, this is very important. Just get your head around this sense that who is a worker and, and take them seriously as a person who works for a living. Uh, my spouse, Eileen Borders, who did feminist studies, did a wonderful little kind of performative act at a, at a rally. And faculty was were urged to wear their their academic regalia, which really comes out of the medieval times. So we're all wearing mm-hmm. our, our, our gowns, you know, and our hats. And uh, my spouse, she said, uh, okay, yes, I'm a distinguished professor with a chair and everything. And then she took off her gown, you know, and there was a union T-shirt, you know, but really I'm a worker. Right. And I think that's what has to happen in the whole sort of cultural world, that whether you're museum curators or uh, in the university or any other area of cultural production, that that really we are, in fact, workers. Prosaic demands for wages, you know, and and better working conditions are important. By the way, the interesting thing about this strike is that the the people who are actually on strike are very variegated cultural, political, racial, gendered, you know, very hip kind of people. What is their demand? Their demand is extraordinarily conventional. It is for higher wages. Nothing could be more conventional than that uh, in, in terms of labor, but, but that's essential to their dignity and their capacity, actually, to do their jobs, to write, for example, to write a dissertation. You have to have time to do it. You can't be busting dishes at a, in a restaurant in addition to your job as a teaching assistant. You have to have time to write. So this is what they're really demanding. Well, and then in terms of broader implications, you know, I read an article that said campus area housing has long been a policy concern, vexing state lawmakers and inciting town gown legal battles. Now, I'm not saying that that's inaccurate, but it does make it sound like a fight that I don't necessarily have a dog in, you know. But there are broader implications of this strike that go beyond the workers, extending minimally to all of their students and their potential students. One source says, I can't in good conscience tell someone to come here for their Ph.D., because the cost of living is untenable. Yes, right, yeah. The housing crisis is really a labor question in California. I mean, people commuting from the Central Valley 
to work in Silicon Valley. That's a two-hour commute. Well, why are they doing that? I mean, because they can't afford the housing in the San Francisco Bay Area. Obviously, that's also true in the, in the university. We have the people, both staff and academic people, who are commuting 40, 50 miles to work at the university. This is all because of housing. Everyone recognizes in California this gigantic crisis. I mean, if this great state with the tremendous industries and a kind of really liberal political culture. But the Achilles heel of this state is housing, hmm. the housing crisis. And the students here at UC, grad students and, and others, are really putting this on the agenda as you have to do something about it. Now, one way is you pay us more, you know, okay. And if you don't want to do that, then you have to figure out some way to reduce the cost of housing. Housing is at least 40% of the inflationary spike, probably more in California. So something has to be done. And I think this is the way issues get put on the agenda, on the state and national agenda, by making social disruption. And that's what's been happening for the last three weeks here at UC. Well, I wanted to point out one article, a New York Times piece by Kamiko de Freitas Tamora. And it was really, it was not about UC. It was about adjunct strikes at the new school where I got my graduate degree. And it was unusual because it introduced the topic of administrator salaries. And it quoted someone who had looked at compensation data saying, quote, the administrators seem to view themselves as essential and everyone else as inessential, close quote. Without that kind of context, reports on the strike and these workers want more pay, it's kind of like giving the ball score Red Sox six, you know, like you're missing the context in which more money is being called for. And it makes it sound like they're asking for money to be created out of thin air when we're talking about power. And that's true. Administrators proliferated. But I would make this point. Some on the on the left who are um, supportive of the strike and supportive of grants would say, oh, you know, the money is there. Let's just take it out of a, from these, these loaded administrative overhead. Right. And that's true. You can get some of it. But I don't think that's, that's not going to solve the problem. Mm-hmm. What will solve the problem is we've had 40 years of austerity from state legislatures and the national government as well, in terms of funding of higher education. What we need to do is to go to the legislatures and have progressive taxation. We have Elon Musk here in California. We have we have all the we have the Facebook people, etc. We need to have a revision of the tax code which returns us to the world of nineteen fifty five, which was a much more progressive era when it came to taxes. And that's where the money is. That's where the really big money is. That's where the billions and billions are. And stop this starving of higher education, decade by decade, a smaller portion of the actual operating funds of of all the state universities have come from the general tax revenues. We need to reverse that. And a strike like this puts that issue on the agenda. And I think that's where the money's going to come from. Well, let me just ask you finally, and you've just hinted towards it, do you have thoughts about what truly responsible, thoughtful news media coverage would look like, things it would include, and and maybe some things it would leave out. Well, yes. Actually, you indicated that the obstacle to this settlement of the strike is the administration, uh, the people who run it, who want to maintain and continue this untenable model of a kind of impoverished, precarious, large group of grad students in a kind of limbo. They want to continue that and think that's tenable. It's not tenable. We need a breakthrough, which is going to transform the meaning of what it means to be a academic worker. And, you know, the, the status quo is untenable. And I think that that sense of crisis 
it needs to be up front in terms of media coverage of this strike and many others of that sort. We've come to a period of increasing inequality and increasing kind of stress at work. And the, the pandemic demonstrated that, but it, it's there. This, it's untenable for the future. We've been speaking with Nelson Lichtenstein. His article, The Largest Strike in the History of American Higher Ed, can be found at dissentmagazine.org. Nelson Lichtenstein, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. You're welcome, indeed. Recent reports from Politico and the New York Times expose a pattern of improper lobbying of right-wing Supreme Court justices by wealthy evangelicals pushing conservative positions on social issues before the court. The long-term operation, dubbed the Ministry of Emboldenment, was revealed by Reverend Rob Shank, who used to run the group Faith and Action, which recruited rich donors and urged them to invite some justices, you won't be surprised which ones, to dinner, vacation homes, and private clubs. Changing minds wasn't necessary. The goal was to, quote, stiffen the resolve of the court's conservatives in taking uncompromising stances, close quote. For example, the stance that led to the elimination of rights of bodily autonomy for half of the country's populace. Schenck has now changed his colors and told the New York Times that what we did was wrong. Well, the focus for many is that in one of those private dinners, Samuel Alito appears to have tipped the 2014 Burwell versus Hobby Lobby ruling, where the court said private companies can demand religious exemptions from the Affordable Care Act's requirement that their health plans cover contraceptives, helping Hobby Lobby put together their PR campaign in advance. We're joined now by Marjorie Cohn, Professor Emerita at Thomas Jefferson School of Law, former president of the National Lawyers Guild and author of numerous books, including Drones and Targeted Killing, Legal, Moral, and Geopolitical Issues. She's also co-host of Law and Disorder Radio. Joining us now by phone from San Diego, welcome back to Counterspin, Marjorie Cohn. Thanks for having me, Janine. Well, we don't have a lot of time today, and I'd like to refer folks to your work at truthout.org for more details. But I just want to say, for me, there's a question of focus here. Anyone can pitch, but someone has to catch. So as a citizen, I guess I'm moderately less interested in what horse hockey some people were selling than the fact that you know, a, a good part of one of the three branches of government um, chose to buy it, you know, and then purvey it, right? This is, this is deeper than a few fancy dinners. It is. This Rob Shank you mentioned actually prayed with Scalia and Thomas in their chambers, uh, invoking the sanctity of human life to encourage them to end abortion. And since Rob Shank said the Supreme Court is the most insulated and isolated branch. We've literally had to pray our way in there each step of the way. And he said that in 2000, he met and prayed with Scalia just 24 hours after the court issued Bush v. Gore, basically handing the 2000 presidential election to George W. Bush. But the news hook now 
about this. It's called Operation Higher Court, which took place from 1995 to 2018. It was an operation by Faith and Action, a right-wing evangelical nonprofit. And they basically cultivated 20 couples to travel to Washington, D.C., and wine and dine Alito, Thomas, and Scalia. In 2014, Alito dined with one of the primary donors of Faith in Action, Gail Wright. She left with inside knowledge about the result of the Hobby Lobby case. Alito, sure enough, wrote the majority opinion, and Alito also wrote the majority opinion in the Dobbs case earlier this year, which reversed Roe v. Wade. And four months before Dobbs came down, Alito's draft opinion was leaked to Politico, and the final opinion largely tracked the draft. Well, this is no coincidence that both of these decisions, Hobby Lobby and Dobbs, served the conservative evangelical agenda, and both were leaked by people with, with advanced knowledge of the results. Both Gail Wright and Alito have denied that this conversation took place before the Hobby Lobby decision came out, but both the New York Times and Politico have corroborated the conversation through contemporaneous conversations, emails, and a timeline, so it does look like it really is true. Now, one of the real outrages here, Janine, is that the Supreme Court uh, justices, and I use that word advisedly, I don't think they are just most of them, but they are not bound by the code of conduct for U.S. judges. Mm -hmm. There is basically no higher authority that tells Supreme Court members what they can and cannot do. And under the code of conduct, judges have to avoid even the appearance of impropriety and certainly this situation with the Hobby Lobby revelation creates the appearance of impropriety. Now, Supreme Court members do have to recuse themselves from cases in which their impartiality may reasonably be questioned. But when they fail to do so, they don't give reasons most of the time. There's no enforcement. And one of the canons of this code of conduct says that a judge has to disqualify himself where the judge's impartiality may reasonably be questioned, or when his spouse has an interest that could be affected substantially by the outcome of the proceeding. Mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny, has been a prominent proponent of the big lie that the 2020 presidential election was stolen from Trump. She sent 29 texts to then-White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, urging him to reverse the election results. And she falsely told Republican state legislators in Arizona and Wisconsin that the authority to choose electors was, quote, theirs and theirs alone, unquote. She was talking about the so-called independent state legislature theory, which says that only state legislatures can draw congressional maps. There is no review by any state courts. And that very theory, the independent state legislature theory, is at issue in a case now pending before the Supreme Court, Moore v. Harper. And on December 7th, it will be orally argued before the Supreme Court, and we'll see whether Clarence Thomas recuses himself. I would bet good money that he won't. Now, the chairman of the Senate and House Judiciary Federal Court Subcommittees, Sheldon Whitehouse and Henry Johnson, wrote a letter in September to Chief Justice John Roberts, 
and asked the Supreme Court to list the dinners and travel and lodging that the justices received from this faith and action, and also asked if any of these justices were aware of Operation Higher Court before the recent news reports. On November 7th, two months later, Roberts and the Supreme Court's legal counsel answered White House and Johnson's letter and refused to respond to the chairman's questions about the relationship between the justices and Operation Higher Court. They just wrote, basically, the justices rely on the code of conduct for United States judges in evaluating ethics issues. Well, then on November 20th, White House and Johnson wrote a letter to Roberts and the legal counsel and asked, have you opened an investigation into these allegations? Have you evaluated any of your practices and procedures? And on November 28th, the Supreme Court counsel wrote to White House and Johnson reiterating the denials by Alito and Wright, who denied that this conversation took place about Hobby Lobby. And also this letter to White House and Johnson says, quote, there is nothing to suggest that Justice Alito's actions violated ethics standards, unquote. So basically, the Supreme Court is apparently burying its head in the sand, saying we didn't do anything wrong. And there are calls now for Congress to enact the Supreme Court Ethics Recusal and Transparency Act, which was passed by the House Judiciary Committee in May, and it basically requires the Supreme Court to set up its own code of ethical conduct. Also, there are calls for the Senate Judiciary Committee to hold hearings and investigate this apparent leak by Alito, where Reverend Rob Shank would be one of the star witnesses. Well, thank you. That covered a lot of the factual ground. Let me just ask you one other thing. You note that justices are called on to recuse themselves in instances in which their impartiality could reasonably be questioned. And to me, that raises the question of who's going to question them. And that brings me back to the press corps, which is, of course, what we're here to talk about. What do you see finally as the role of media here right now? I mean, the media played a role already in bringing these things to light. But going forward, what could reporters do? Yes. Well, I think that this story should get big coverage. And I think the story should be followed by both the corporate and the alternate media. And you and I are both doing that. The reputation of the court is, I think, probably at an all-time low now, given the leak of the Dobbs decision and the overturning of Roe v. Wade, and then now with this Alito Hobby Lobby story. I think it's going to be very hard to just ignore it, maintain the denial that the court is apparently uh, saying, you know, that they didn't do anything wrong. And I think Roberts is probably very, very concerned. And I think that this is not going to go away, but I think it needs to be covered continually by the media and also pushing for the Supreme Court to actually develop a code of ethics that they operate under. And uh, we'll see if anything comes from that. And hearings. We're not going to see any hearings in the House come January, but uh, we certainly might see hearings in the Senate Judiciary Committee, since that is still in Democratic hands. All right, then. Well, we'll have to stop you there just for now. We'll obviously be coming back to this. We've been speaking with Marjorie Cohn. Her recent piece, Evangelical Lobbying Threatens Supreme Court's Independence, can be found at truthout.org. Marjorie Cohn, thank you, as always, for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you so much, Janine.
And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by the media watch group FAIR. You can learn more about FAIR at the website fair.org. And that's also the place to help support the work if you are able and so inclined. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.